Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Amnesty slams proposed Nigerian laws as attack on free speech and countries urged to sign a declaration that will ensure that children are prioritized. In economics news, South Africa's president vows drastic steps to save state companies and in sports news, South Africa ready to play Lesotho at the Kasafa Under-20 Championships. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent. And impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. South Africa is the latest country in Africa to be hit with heavy rains, flooding power stations and massive electricity cuts. The South African Air Force helicopter was deployed to evacuate people trapped in a hotel in Centuria near the capital Pretoria as flood waters rose. At least 700 shacks have been washed away in Mambulodi, east of Pretoria, after the Muruletele and Hinops rivers burst their banks. The Tswane Emergency Services have warned road users not to attempt to cross flooded bridges and any other streams where the water has swelled above normal. The South African Weather Service has issued another warning of more rain in Gauteng province which could result in more localized flooding. Warmer and drier temperatures are only expected towards the middle of the week. Offensicity more reports. People that were actually trapped in the water. So the 20 emergency service guys, the divers and everyone else were working around the clock to try and, you know, to rescue those that were not able to get out of the water because you find that there were people that thought the water would eventually subside. So they stuck in the area and they thought that the water would subside, but that wasn't the case. The water kept on rising and rising until they were not able to go to a, a, a more dry area. The son of Angola's former president has gone on trial for corruption. Jose Filomeno dos Santos and his co-accused former central bank governor, Walter Felipe, are being accused of transferring 500 million U.S. dollars from the central bank to an account in Britain around the time that his father prepared to step down after 38 years in power. They've pleaded not guilty. The case is being seen as a test of the country's commitment to undoing the corruption that flourished during the four-decade rule of former president Jose Eduardo dos Santos. People in the self-declared Republic of Somaliland have started shooting at swarms of locusts to try to drive them away. The Agriculture Ministry has denied reports that the army has been deployed to fire at the insects. However, it says people are free to deal with them in whatever way they wish. In other locust-affected areas, including Ethiopia and Somalia, people have been banging pots and pans to try to frighten them away. The United Nations has described the current locust infestation in the Horn of Africa as extremely serious. 
Eight people are still missing and presumed dead after a volcanic eruption on a small New Zealand island popular with tourists on Monday. Five people have been confirmed dead and about 30 more are seriously injured. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says flights have showed no signs of life on White Island. Rescuers have been unable to access the island which is covered in grey ash. Ardern says tourists from Australia, the United States, Britain, China and Malaysia are among the missing and injured along with New Zealanders. She's confirmed that there there will be a government inquiry into the incident. India has introduced a bill aimed at granting citizenship to non-Muslims fleeing neighboring countries. The Citizenship Amendment Bill changes the current law which prohibits illegal migrants from becoming citizens. It's already won an initial vote in the lower house of parliament but requires a majority in the upper house to become law. The BBC's Pratishka Hedil reports. The controversial Citizenship Amendment Bill offers amnesty to non-Muslim illegal immigrants from the three neighbouring countries of Pakistan, Afghanistan and Bangladesh. Supporters of the bill argue that this is meant to help minorities fleeing persecution from the Muslim-majority countries. But opposition parties say the bill is part of an agenda by India's governing Hindu Nationalist Party, the BJP, to marginalise Muslims. Activists say that discrimination based on religion goes against the secular values that India was founded on and that faith should not be a consideration for citizenship. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, and the Office of the Human Rights Commissioner have called on countries to sign a declaration that will ensure that children are prioritized and the climate action policies. The United Nations bodies are emphasizing that the climate crisis is actually a children's rights crisis. The younger and future generations are the most vulnerable and will experience the devastating impacts of climate change the most. Noma Bolani reports from Madrid in Spain. Young people are calling on world leaders to include them in climate action deliberations. Youth from all corners of the globe are using the Fridays for Future movement to pressurize their respective governments to commit carbon reduction and adaptation mechanisms. They've shared their fears about the extreme weather patterns and pollution damaging their home countries and continents. Nakabuye Flavia from Uganda and Angela Falenzuela from Chile have described the lack of action by developed countries 
as environmental racism. Which type of storm or what flavor of floods must Africa test for us to get climate justice? Every Friday, we continue to step out of our comfort zones by missing classes to stress the climate issue. How many more classes must we skip for the world to know we are suffering the most? Developed countries must be ashamed of themselves. It seems that some lives matter more than others. The rich and powerful seem happy to sacrifice our communities in the pursuit of profit. So here at COP, back in Chile and around the world, people will continue to rise against governments that do not represent us. Our lives are not up for negotiation. Our planet is not for sale. Environmental experts are concerned that country plans on mitigation and the nationally determined contributions don't mention or include children or young people. UNICEF believes that the youth UNICEF believes that youth participation is vital in fighting climate change. Global Communications Chief Paloma Escudero. The climate crisis is a child rights crisis. We cannot lose sight of this fact, particularly as we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Convention of the, Child's, of the Rights of the Child, but also uh, we are celebrating tomorrow Human Rights Day. From hurricanes to droughts, to floods, to wildfires, the consequences of the climate crisis are all around us, affecting children the most and threatening their health, education, protection and very survival. Human Rights Commissioner Michelle Bachelet wants government leaders to recognize the children's rights to a protected and sustainable planet. Children and young people, including young people under the age of 18, have a right to participate in decision-making. The Convention of the Rights of the Child demands this. The Paris Agreement reaffirms it. And I am glad to see young people asserting this right in courtrooms and on the street, at the United Nations and in parliaments to demand more effective climate action. On Tuesday, ministers of environment will deliver their country statements on the progress they're making on climate action. It remains to be seen if they'll answer the call and consider the Youth Action Declaration. I'm Noma Bolani in Madrid, Spain. Amnesty International has urged the Nigerian parliament to stop further consideration of two proposed laws it says will let the authorities further strip away free speech in the country. Supporters insist the bills currently before the Senate aim to hate speech, to stop hate speech and tackle disinformation on the internet. But the legislation has drawn fire from rights activists in Africa's most populous nation. More from Issa Sanusi, media manager for Amnesty International in Nigeria. Our main concern is that uh, the two bills uh, have the tendency of becoming an instrument of government. Uh, to deny people their freedom of expression and uh, to use it in allowing, in denying people who have a different view uh, to use social media. And we see it as a violation of uh, some provisions of Nigerian constitution. And we also see it as an attempt by the government to shut up uh, criticism and uh, shrink the civic space.
and uh, control, you know, the capacity of Nigerians to express free opinions uh, on social media. So then now that you have concern with regards to these bills, what is it that you want authorities in Nigeria to do with these two bills? Well, we want the authorities to drop them, to drop the bills, and uh, make sure that uh, none of the provisions of that bill is implemented. We want the government to allow people to continue to use social media because in Nigeria we already have two laws that take care of all the things that the government wants to do. But these two uh, pieces of legislation are aimed at, you know, denying people the opportunity to express their opinion. What we are saying is that the government should drop that, this plan and stop it and end it and uh, allow people to use social media responsibly and allow people to express their opinions because social media is the only step now left for Nigerians to uh, uh, say their minds, criticize authorities, demand accountability from those in government and say their minds as they like. Uh, in Nigeria, if you go into protest these days, you will be attacked by, by, by the police, uh, you will be tear-gassed by the police, and many, many other places you can't even attempt to have a protest because you have to seek for government permission, and people no longer have that freedom to exercise their freedom to assemble and protest. But social media is the only avenue now left for Nigerians, and we are not going to allow it and we, we find it very unacceptable for the government to try to control the only means left for Nigerians, the only platform left for Nigerians to criticize government and say their mind and, and demand accountability from those in authority. So what happens then if the government does decide to sign these bills into law? What recourse then do you as Amnesty have or what avenue do you follow? Uh, well, we have a lawful ways of protesting, uh, uh, but, but we are very hopeful that the government will be reasonable enough to abandon these bills and not to go ahead with them. Uh, Nigerians have already indicated that they will not, they will not accept these bills so I don't think that the government will go ahead and do it because the government was elected by the people and they have to listen to the people if at all we are a democracy. So we are hopeful that the government will listen to the people and drop this idea of regulating social media. But if they go ahead, I don't think Nigerians will accept it because already people are expressing their willingness to defend their freedom of expression. That was Issa Sanusi, media manager for Amnesty International Nigeria, on the line speaking to Ntlenka Maklang. Governance in Africa has improved in the last decade, but gaps still exist in the continent's democratic and political governance, according to the inaugural African Governance Report, which was launched in Nairobi on Monday. The document, which was prepared by the Africa Peer Review Mechanism and the African Union's African governance architecture gauges the 55 African states' performance in several areas, including leadership, adherence to the rule of law, the enhancement of peace, security and good governance, as well as the role of regional economic communities and fostering unity. Sarah Kimani reports from Nairobi. It is Africa's first report seeking to assess the continent's state of governance. 
The idea is to give governments a template to see where they stand in attaining good governance and democratic institutions. Professor Edi Maloka is the Chief Executive Officer of the APRM Secretariat. We have Agenda 2063, we also have Agenda 2030 in the context of the UN. But where will Africa be in terms of governance? The report gives a mixed picture of the governance landscape in Africa, according to Professor Nigaya Ketch, a governance expert working at APRM. The report reveals that um, if you look at the past decade or so, African governance has improved. And that during this period, uh, the strongest performance was uh, registered in socio-economic development, while the least gains were recorded in democracy and political governance. The assessment also shows that uh, African countries recorded satisfactory performance in the areas of economic governance and management and corporate uh, uh, it ever wants that at least 35 countries have laws that discriminate against minority groups and half of the 55 African states lack anti-corruption strategies and the continent's human rights record is wanting. Number two, it recommends that uh, African leaders should endeavor to end all forms of uh, discrimination and exclusion. It concludes by recommending better coordination between the roles of regional economic communities and the African Union. Sarah Kimani, SBC News, Kenya. Tune in to Vision 2030 with Una Pateke and Tabile Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One, hashtag Vision 2030. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Governance in Africa has improved in the last decade, but gaps still exist in the continent's democratic and political governance, according to the inaugural African Governance Report, which was launched in Nairobi on Monday. The document, which was prepared by the Africa Peer Review Mechanism and the African Union's African Governance Architecture, gauges the 55 African states' performance in several areas, including leadership, adherence to the rule of law, the enhancement of peace, security and good governance, as well as, well as the role of regional economic communities in fostering unity. Sarah Kimani reports from Nairobi. The South African Communist Party's Special National Congress will most likely see the status quo within the Communist Party and the alliance remain. Speculation that the National Special Congress may result in a change of leadership and a shift in the SACP's relationship with the alliance partner, the ANC, appears unfounded. The Congress, which is taking place over the next three days on Johannesburg's East Rand, is aimed at looking at progress since the party's 14th Congress in July 2017. Busi reports. The SACP's Special National Congress will be confined to discussing policy, with no prospect of the party's leadership being contested. 
First Deputy General Secretary Solima Baila. According to our rules, if a Congress, a special national Congress, has to be elective, a number of provinces must make an official request to the Central Committee for such a consideration. So appropriate uh, arrangements are then made. Um, our last meeting in September, the first week of September, which was an expanded meeting we call Augmented Central Committee, there was no province that has made a formal submission for that. There was, however, an issue that was raised by one province regarding elective special congress. And that meeting overwhelmingly rejected that idea. In much the same vein, SACP General Secretary Bladen Zimande will likely continue to lead the Communist Party for the next two years. This contrary to weekend reports that the majority of the party's provinces are seeking to get him to choose between leading the party and continuing as Minister of Higher Education. This relates to a proposal to the Congress that all members of the party's secretariat, of which Nzimande is a part, serve the party in a permanent capacity. Zimande has led the SACP since 1998. Mapaila again. There is a, a province that is made in our constitutional amendment a proposition that says all members of the secretariat should be full-time and all provincial se- members of the provincial secretariat should be full-time. It will be subject to discussions by Congress and even if such a decision had to be taken, it's not something that you then implement the next day. But at the moment, that resolution has no seconder from any other province. I think uh, the current arrangement is the one that uh, will operate with until the next Congress. With regards to the alliance, the SACP says it prefers that the party continue to run together with the ANC during the forthcoming local government elections in 2021. This, it says, does not mean that it has retreated from a push from members at the party's 14th Congress in 2017 that it contest elections independently. General Secretary Bladen Zimande. They use this question to provoke us and say, yeah, you're scared. You know, you're afraid to actually contest elections separately. We're not afraid of that. We have a much more important goal to unite all the progressive forces under one banner of our alliance in order to take our country forward. We don't want to divide ourselves because as the SACP, we don't represent our jackets. We represent a class. We represent the working class of this country. And we don't want to divide ourselves We still feel that we still need to be united in order to be able to to move forward. The Special Congress will enter its second day on Tuesday with an assessment by Nzimande of the country's politics as well as a report on the state of the party delivered by Mabaila. Deputy President David Mabuza will attend the proceedings on behalf of President Cyril Ramaphosa, who will be out of the country. That report by Busi Chimombe in Johannesburg. Sub-Saharan Africa remains the region with the highest levels of corruption worldwide, according to Transparency International's latest Corruption Perceptions Index. With an overall score of 43 out of 100, the index also indicates that South Africa is significantly worse off than its neighbours, Botswana and Namibia. With this in mind, the proposed amendments contained in the Prevention and Combating of Corrupt Activities Bill in South Africa may offer some much-needed support 
in combating corruption in the country. This is according to Kiran Madav. Director of Forensic Services at Mazas, a global audit and accounting firm. He spoke to Channel Africa's Lebuhang Mabange. It's an anti-corruption day and that is to, it's a, it's a United Nations initiative that's been uh, earmarked for this particular day and it's to bring about greater awareness on corruption and anti-corruption uh, and what can be done to alleviate corruption to an acceptable level uh, so that it can benefit those that are probably living in poverty and funds that have been earmarked for those uh, developments uh, that can uh, for development and aid uh, infrastructure can be matched for those purposes. Yeah. So talk to us about the proposed amendments for the anti-corruption laws and how it will benefit South Africa. South Africa's anti-corruption le- legislation is containing the uh, Prevention and Combating of Corrupt Activities Act. Uh, and that act has been around for quite a number of years, since 2003, 2004, uh, when you know when it was actually promulgated. Uh, obviously, the the act is a little deficient in in certain aspects. It's, although it criminalizes and and can it criminalizes pro- prosecution, uh, and it places an obligation in terms of Section 34 to to report uh, any suspicions of corrupt activities. Uh, it was lacking in many respects. And one of those has been, it now requires the amendments uh, to this bill, uh, which is which are proposed, is that all institutions to implement uh, internal compliance programs uh, so that to prevent and detect uh, corruption. So that wasn't there previously. Uh, having said that, uh, in its current form, the amendment, uh, there's very little details on what this internal compliance program should entail. Uh, that's the one. And the second one is, what are the repercussions for those institutions that haven't implemented any internal compliance program? So it's a little bit vague at this stage, but it's a positive step, uh, nevertheless, uh, in, in creating this provision uh, in the in the new bill. Uh, the second one is that a court, it's, it's regard to penalties, and a court uh, may find that any person uh, that's in a, a, pers- a position of authority who, who makes a bona fide uh, or files a bona fide report in terms of Section 34 may not be held liable for any civil, criminal, or disciplinary action uh, in going forward. So what it's also doing this particular provision is creating, like, other legisla- uh, like legislation in other jurisdictions, like the UK bribery and the FCPA in the, in the US, some sort of self-reporting of of corrupt acts in from a corporate perspective or from a, a company perspective as well. So it's encouraging that. Uh, but having said that, uh, the courts may not grant absolute discretion where you not may not be liable. So there is a possibility that you as a, a corporate uh, as a corporate may still be liable for some sort of penalties and fines as well as a result of that. So what can private organizations do when it comes to fighting corruption? Well, I think the, the act, the both, is, is very self-explanatory. These internal compliance programs create uh, that forum that the, you know, companies need to ensure that they have an anti-corruption program within, within their organization, uh, that there's appropriate policies and procedures uh, and that has to be accompanied by a proper tone at the top. So those in position of 
authority and those in a position that are responsible for governance in the organization ensure that they also toe in the line and making sure that the anti-corruption measures are treated seriously uh, in the organization. Uh, the next one is probably some a very common method is the whistleblowing of uh, whistleblowing hotline. All companies or corporates should basically have a whistleblowing hotline that can report on corruption, so that it can ultimately reach those in position of authority, and it can be reported to the authorities in terms of Section 34 uh, of the Act, uh, performing some sort of corruption risk assessment. So. The company, some of the corporates where they basically operate from, which countries they interact with and they operate in, understanding which geographies are higher risk than others, what type of transactions are higher risk as well, uh, will also in some way go forward in, in trying to, uh, for corporates to basically get a better understanding as to where these corruption risks actually lie. Assessment of your, your clients your suppliers, your intermediaries, to understand what are the corruption risks uh, applicable there. And my favorite at the moment is basically some, having some sort of accounting control. If you can have the best program in place, but if you do not monitor uh, and you have measures in place to monitor it, and you, 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 it actually falls flat. So this anti-corruption plan or, or program basically is ineffective. It's good on paper, but it's, it really doesn't work. Uh, and also looking at some of your accounting controls, you know, making sure that these accounting controls are looked at, you know, people in, in those positions to monitor certain transactions, groups and, and transactions. That's Kieran Madav, Director of Forensic Services at Mazas, on the line speaking to Lebuhang Mabange. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent. And impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headline South Africa is the latest country in Africa to be hit with heavy rains, flooding power stations, and massive electricity cuts. The son of Angola's former president, Jose Filomeno dos Santos, has gone on trial for corruption and people in the self-declared Republic of Somaliland have started shooting at swarms of locusts to try to drive them away. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
South Africa's Free State Province has been in the spotlight for corruption, fraud and maladministration at the Zonda Commission inquiry. One of the major projects marred with corruption has been the controversial multi-million rand Estina Freda Dairy Farm project. Government officials have been implicated and some arrested for alleged corruption in the province. The Free State Government commemorated International Anti-Corruption Day on Monday in Bloemfontein to highlight the dire impact of the scourge. Apumele Limplalani reports. The more than 220 million rand farm project linked to the Gupta family has been at the center stage of a corruption and money laundering scandal. The project aimed at empowering local black farmers has been plagued with corruption allegations since its inception. Eight people, including Gupta family and government officials, were arrested for alleged corruption. Free State Premier Sisin Dombela says corruption won't be tolerated. Everyone who's doing any corruption, he or she is on her own. We are not going to tolerate any corruption in the free state. So they know we had a meeting with all mayors, we had a meeting with all MECs, all HODs. Anyone who is continuing to do corruption, he or she is on her own. Service delivery protests have also been on the rise with residents taking to the streets to voice their dissatisfaction. Many municipalities are on the verge of collapse, with three of them placed under administration due to mismanagement of funds. Three municipal managers were arrested for alleged fraud and corruption. Former mayor of Kestrept Maluti Apofu municipality Vusi Chabalala was exed following a motion of no confidence against him. Due to rife corruption, residents say they are on the receiving end. We are affected in a very bad way because... We have three basic needs that we need to get from our government and also the municipality. And of which the three basic needs that we, we are supposed to get, we are not really getting them from getting it from, from them. No, it's a challenge with us because most of the time, uh, like now it's rain season, roads are not okay, poor service delivery, our schools, infrastructure is bad, and then we are starting the new year. Those things affect us as well as the community. Corruption affects us in a very bad way, especially when it comes to um, uh, people People who are gaining from the corruption and people who are supposed to be gaining from the service delivery that is supposed to be delivered by our government, you find that um, the less fortunate people, they are the ones who suffer the most. The Auditor General's report has revealed that the province has the highest wasteful expenditure and in the red light with no clean audit. Former Asset for Future Unit Head Willie Hofmeyer spoke about the role of investigators in combating corruption. Hofmeyer says the integrity of the state needs to be preserved. But you know, the problem with the scale of some of the big cases we have at the moment is that you need really very talented, very skilled people to help with those investigations. And I think it's in that area that we are often looking, in the short term at least, to bring in people from the forensic companies and the private sector to help with those cases. But they're not necessarily prosecutors, they're more investigators than prosecutors. Meanwhile, Special Investigations Unit is also looking into the awarding of more than 250 million rand contract by the Free State Provincial Government relating to the alleged irregular asbestos contract. I'm Apumele Limzalane in Bloemfontein. Over 700 families, mostly living in informal settlements, have been left stranded after their homes flooded in Mamelodi, east of South Africa's capital, Pretoria. This has heavy downpour 
which started on Tuesday last week, continues in most parts of the country. The East Rand region of, Jaha- of Gauteng, Tswane and the West Rand have been severely affected. Roads and bridges are still flooding, Fennel Schumer reports. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The rise in youth unemployment is one of the most significant problems facing South Africa's economy. According to United Nations report, 73 million young people are currently unemployed, with 40 million joining the labour market each year. To tackle the problem, at least 475 million new jobs need to be created over the next decade. Youth skills development is one of Meals on Wheels strategic pillars the fully-fledged and recognized NGO in South Africa, which recently took 28 young people and trained them on one of their farms for basic agricultural skills. More from Tom Kubega, Agricultural Project Advisor at Meals on Wheels. Meals on Wheels is a non-profitable organization. It was created or started in 1964 by a gentleman called Dr. Baird. That was in East London. And the intentions of starting it was actually to feed those, those that could not afford a plate of food on a daily basis. And uh, it, um, it has now grown to be more than being a, um, a plate giver or food distributor. It is now an organization that actually looks at a number of things which are food security, and it also looks at um, um, the poverty alleviation self-sustainability and fundraising. It is actually it is found nationally in South Africa, in whichever province you can think of. So what motivated Meals on Wheels to use skills development as a tool to address the issue of food insecurity? You know, with the history, with the history that we have of being known as an organization that only gives a plate of food, we looked at it and said, we actually need more. We actually need to give more to the community. We cannot always be giving them food into eternity. We must actually be able to bring back or retain their integrity by transferring some skills to them so that they can be able to be self-sustainable into the future. So last week, about 28 people were graduating. So um, let's talk about that. What have the graduates been trained on? We have trained the graduates for them to understand how to identify a land that they can use to grow their own food. That's number one. We also trained them on identifying the conducive soil that is suitable for any cultivar of crop that they might have chosen, like spinach, for example. So we taught them what to look for in the soil, which is mainly the common denominators of nutrients, which are your nitrogen, potassium, and calcium, and how to balance the three. The other thing that we taught them is how to prepare the land for any type of crop, 
the fourth thing that we taught them is what to plant in which seasons and where and how. We also taught them how to transplant, how to start a seedling section, how to manage the crop, how to identify deficiencies in a crop, and how to rectify those deficiencies. Lastly but not least, how to harvest and also how to market a crop. Those are the basics that we taught them of agriculture. And what, yes. w- what will be the exit strategy from the training? As soon as we have kept them for a year to two years, giving them the experience, letting them understand the theoretical part that we have, that we have taught them, we will be in a position to identify land where we can transfer them to so that they can be able to plant on their own. Number two, also for them to plant in their backyards and know what to plant in their backyards so that they can also start benefiting from what they've planted in their backyards in a way of having their own meal and also selling the surplus of crops that they will have planted. Now talk to us about um, what Meals on Wheels plans to use to assist these graduates to utilize this training to improve their lives. Okay, the manner in which we are going to help them or we have started helping them with is number one, what we have done to transfer a skill to them is number one thing that we, that we have done. Number two, we are, because we are a non-profit organization, we are in a process of attracting sponsors and donors to give us funding so that we have got money to lease the land for these graduates. We lease the land, we have got the capital that we get from donors. So that's where our, our help is going to come from because we as an organization, we do not have cash as such, but we get donated to by banks, corporates, private sectors, and even some retail shops. So that is how we are going to help them. Identify a place, pay for it, and then keep on teaching them, mentoring them on what we have taught them. And even on the marketing side, where we sell as Meals on Wheels, we will take their produce when they start producing and help them to deliver it and to sell it to the market that we currently have. That's Tom Kubega, Agricultural Project Advisor at Meals on Wheels, on the line speaking to Lebuchang Mabange. South Africa is again featuring prominently in international news headlines on this occasion due to an exceptional performance by Zozibini Tunzi, who claimed the Miss Universe crown in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. The new Miss Universe is South Africa! The moment that took even her breath away. A confident display from the 26-year-old who hails from the Eastern Cape and who only got her modelling start just months ago. This was host Steve Harvey's final question to Miss South Africa. What is the most important thing we should be teaching young girls today? I think the most important thing we should be teaching young girls today is leadership. It's something that has been lacking in young girls and women for a very long time, not because we don't want to, but because of what society has labeled women to be. I think we are the most powerful beings on the world, 
and that we should be given every opportunity and that is what we should be teaching these young girls to take up space nothing as important as taking up space in society and cementing yourself thank you Tunzi follows the most recent success of Demi Lee Nell Peters, who claimed the crown in 2017 after Margaret Gardner won it for South Africa in 1978, making this the third crowning achievement in this competition for the country. She beat contestants from Mexico and Puerto Rico, who completed the top three, becoming the first Miss South Africa to wear the brand new Power of Unity crown. Worth a whopping 72 million rand, a top five response on climate change was also noteworthy, on whether leaders of today are doing enough to protect future generations. I think that the future leaders could do a little bit more, but however, I feel like we as individuals ourselves can also play a part in making the climate um, the way it should be in the future. I mean, we have um, children protesting for climate, and I feel like as adults we should join as well. We should have corporations join as well, and the government should take it seriously. Tunzi, who made her first trip to New York in September, where she walked the Amakosa show at New York Fashion Week. Made these prescient remarks then. First time in New York Fashion Week. First time in New York even. And to think I wasn't a model about a month ago. Now all of a sudden I'm finding myself walking in a very big city. I mean, it's a testament to how dreams come true and really um, not mattering where you come from and just having a vision and making sure you go for it. And I never imagined this would happen, but you know, here I am having the best time ever. Dreams realized and a nation in awe and admiration. Listen to presidential spokesperson Kusela Diko. The nation is very proud of Zozibeni Tunzi. Um, the president has sent his warmest congratulations to her. Her win is an affirmation, not only to young African women, but to women across the world, that indeed their dreams are valid. And as they continue to pursue and live out their dreams, they need to stand for something. Tunzi now moves to New York for the duration of her year-long reign as part of a multi-million-dollar winning package. I'm Sherman Bryce Pees in New York. Our economics updates up next with Tabiso Luhoku. Thanks, Balungila, and good morning. South Africa plunged deeper into darkness and its growth outlook dimmed when utility ESCOM announced unprecedented levels of blackouts on Monday, just as President Sir Ramaphosa said he would take drastic steps to turn around state firms. The power utility cut up to 6000 megawatts of power from the national grid after heavy rain and a flooding triggered failures at its Midubi power station in Limpopo province. It increased the load shedding from stage 4 to stage 6 and then reverted to stage 4. The cut is the largest since Eskom introduced a program of rolling blackouts in 2008, rattling already shaky investor sentiment towards the country. Eskom board chairperson Jabu Mabuza says that they are not oblivious of the impact of load shedding on the economy. 
Undoubtedly, it does affect. Uh, it affects all of our lives. It affects uh, business. It does uh, affect sentiment. And uh, while said it, uh, we are very grateful that uh, part of the, the things we're doing is uh, addressing some of the partials, but also uh, on the demand side, uh, we've been very grateful that some of our major uh, industrial customers have come to the party. So I'm... Um, I'm never unaware of the impact to the, to, the, to the economy. That is why we're doing all we can to, to minimize this. Meanwhile, Eskom Chief Operating Officer Jan Oberholzer explains what prompted the power utility to escalate load shedding to stage six. So because of excessive rains, and this obviously has a very negative uh, impact on coal handling, then, uh, you know, Creel Mine was flooded, so we couldn't get any coal uh, from the mine into to Creel, so we shut down two units and we had to reduce load uh, on some of it. So this is just to give you an idea of what the excess rain actually meant to us. Uh, on two of our other power stations, uh, the power stations actually had excessive flooding inside the power stations. Uganda has been forced to go for commercial and development bank loans with 664.7 million US dollars to finance the public security sector and cover shortfalls in revenue collection. The loan request is before Parliament pending approval. Half of the amount will be borrowed from Stanbeck Bank and the rest from the Trade and Development Bank. A Rwandan engineer has been appointed vice president of a global engineering body, the World Federation of Engineering Organizations. WFEO is an international body that brings together national engineering bodies from at least 100 countries and it represents over 30 million engineers worldwide. WFEO was founded in 1968 by a group of regional engineering organizations under the auspices of the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organizations in Paris, France. Guinea has launched a national summary data page implementing the recommendations of the International Monetary Fund's Enhanced General Data Dissemination System. The NSDP serves as a one-stop dissemination vehicle for essential macroeconomic and financial data in both human and machine-readable formats. The EGDDS was endorsed by the IMF's Executive Board in May 2015 to support improved data transparency, encourage statistical development and help create synergies between data dissemination and surveillance. The US dollar is trading at 366.68 Nigerian Nara. 1068 Botswana Pula, 100 Kenyan shilling, 59 cents, and 1531 Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 413 Brazilian roll, 6363 Russian ruble, 1796 Indian rupee, 73 Chinese yuan, and 1463 to the South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold $1,460, platinum $896 per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $64.17 a barrel. You're listening to Channel Africa, Africa Rise and Shine.
A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update, we begin with the world anti-doping stories. Russia has been handed a four-year ban from all major sporting events by the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA. It means the Russian flag and anthem will not be allowed at events such as the Tokyo 2020 Olympics and Paralympics and football's 2022 World Cup in Qatar. But athletes who can prove they are untainted by the doping scandal will be able to compete under a neutral flag. Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev said the ban was part of chronic anti-Russian hysteria. WADA's executive committee made the unanimous decision to impose the ban on Russia in a meeting in Lausanne, Switzerland yesterday. WADA President Craig Reedy confirms. The CRC recommendation, which was derived from the reports of WADA's intelligence and investigations uh, and external forensic experts, concluded that the Moscow data was intentionally altered prior to and while it was being forensically copied by WADA in January 2018. The consequences include the banning of Russia from the Olympics, Paralympics and World Championships run by all code signatories for four years and the banning of, Russian host, of Russia hosting any of these major events within that time frame. Russian President Vladimir Putin said the country had grounds to appeal against the decision, but what Vice President Linda Helleland said the ban was not enough. If you identify the comments, it's interesting that today uh, all of our government uh, stakeholders were unanimous all of them in favor of, uh, of, of, of the, uh, the balanced view of sanctions, uh, in trying to find out how we can sanction the officials who clearly were responsible for, for implementing this kind of thing and also trying to find a way to allow those presumably younger athletes who are not affected still to be able to take part in sport. And I think the balance is about right. If I look around the whole of the athlete community uh, and go beyond the ginger groups, I find that there are a very large number of athletes who would want to protect clean Russian athletes as well. And our job is to try to protect them all. Uh, and that I think we managed to do with uh, this, this set of sanctions. On to football news, European champions Liverpool need a point away at Austrian side Red Bull Salzburg tonight to be sure of a place in the Champions League last 16. Liverpool are currently top of Group E and will guarantee top sport with a win. Salzburg, who lost 4-3 at Anfield in October, need to win and hope Napoli are beaten by Belgian side Gang. If the Reds lose to Salzburg, they will need Gang to take points off Napoli or Jürgen Klepp's side will drop down to the Europa League. But Klopp says they are more than prepared. Everybody knows it's a final, so we knew it since two weeks, and we are we are prepared for that. That's what we have to say. So Salzburg has to win against us, has to win against Liverpool. It's not that we come here and think we have to dominate Salzburg. We will fight in each challenge, 100%. What Salzburg did at Anfield. Senegal Sadio Mane went to English football after two seasons with Salzburg. The Reds captain Jordan Henderson was asked what it's like to play with the inform Mane. Amazing, <laughs> of course. Not only Sadio, but every other player. We've got so much talent in the squad. Sadio has been outstanding for a long period of time now. 
yeah, he just needs to continue in that in that form. He's a fantastic person off the pitch. Um, works really hard, dedicates his life to football. So yeah, it's great to see him doing as well as he can. But we just want him to continue in that form um, and keep doing what he's been doing. Like I said, for for long periods of time now. Finally, golf news. Rory McIlroy has ruled out competing in the next month's European Tour event in Saudi Arabia despite being offered a large appearance fee. World number one Brooks Kupka, Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson are among big names who will be in action at the Saudi International in late January. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Amnesty slams proposed Nigerian laws as attack on free speech. And the country's urged to sign a declaration that will ensure that children are prioritized in the climate action policies. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutsura Magdaza, technical producer Sfiso Mashekho, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Tsekho with a featuring King Munada with a song titled No Ties. <laughs>